Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles program, a weekly talk show that we call Things We Said Today. This is a program in which we talk about anything and everything that has to do with the Beatles, any part of their past, the present, the future, whatever we feel like talking about in the show. I'm Ken Michaels, one of the regular co-hosts of the show, also known for my syndicated Beatles program called Every Little Thing, being joined by my three regulars. First of all, we have the contributing writer for Billboard.com and also Access.com. And he's also the author of Meet a Monkey, Davy Jones. And that is Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve. Hi, Kent. Hello, everyone. Also in the group, we have the executive editor of Beatle Fan Magazine, and he's also the author of Changing Times, 101 Days That Shaped a Generation. And that's our very own Al Sussman. Hi, Al. Hi, Ken. Hello there, everybody. And also we have a, an author of several Beatle books. He, uh, he's authored From the Cavern to the Rooftop, and recently the ebook called Got That Something, How I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything. And he's also a contributing writer for Beatle Fan in various publications, and that's Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ken. Hello, everyone. And once again, we have our special guest who's been uh, turning up frequently, we're very happy to say. She is the author of several books, including uh, songs we were singing, guided tours through the Beatles' lesser-known tracks, and more, least, more recently, Michael Jackson, FAQ. And also a contributing writer to Beatle Fan. And that being our own Kid O'Toole. Hi, Kit. Hi, Ken. Hi, everybody. Great to be back with you guys. Uh, before we get to our regular topic for the show, we're going to run down a few news items of what we found out in the past week or so. One of which concerns something that's going to be done for George Harrison's birthday coming up, and that is a vinyl box set. It's all of George's studio albums from Wonderwall Music all the way through Brainwashed. And it even includes the double live album of Live in Japan. And they're also throwing in, throwing in a couple of 12-inch vinyl discs for Got My Mind Set on You and When You Was Fab. And uh, that's coming out on February the 24th in a box set. And uh, the titles are all available uh, individually as well. Notice, by the way, that the concert for Bangladesh is not included in there. That's right. But um, mm-hmm. any comments about this, guys? Well, the, the not including Bangladesh is a, a little frustrating in that it's the only thing that's not included, unless you count the greatest hits albums, some of which have some tracks on them that you kind of need to collect. Uh, mm. But um, yeah. Right, I mean, for starters, and he also they also and cheer down the, uh, and the outtakes uh, the uh, the uh, early outtakes. takes the early takes oh, album is yeah. not oh well, that's either. true too yeah yeah. Mm. yeah yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> Alan's voice is getting more frustrated by the minute. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. We got some emails saying we're not allowed to criticize the Harrison estate. So, um, you know, what, what can I say? But uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> no, this was just for me. Listener who takes it amiss. And, and, and I, I, I want to address that slightly. I mean, you know, we're not trashing Olivia and Danny, okay? We're just saying basically we're just responding to the releases or non-releases um mm-hmm. you know and the writer felt that um 
you know, they're doing what George wanted done. Well, I don't know. I don't know that um, she knows that any better than we do, but they put out volume one of take of, of first takes or whatever they called it. Early, t- um, early, 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 takes. early takes. And they said volume one, and that implies volume two is coming. And if she's correct, that they're doing what George wanted, then George wanted them to put out you know, some archival stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. I have a hard time believing that he said, I want you to put out archival stuff, but put it out so slowly that, you know, all the people mm. who would buy this will sort of die off before the whole set <laughs> comes out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe, but anyway, that's just my response. So, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 it's great that they're putting out the box set. I, think it'll be well done i think it'll be lovely um i like the idea that you can also order you know if you've gotten rid of your turntable and you want to get one to go with this box set and some of the others that have come out um in recent years there's a nice nicely designed george harrison turntable they go with the beatles turntable that was yeah uh, yeah Yeah. Yeah, and there is the new version of I Me Mine, which was you know when they when the Harrison yeah. estate announced this, they announced them all together the 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 expanded I Me Mine, the turntable, mm. and mm-hmm. the releases. It's just slightly frustrating that there are these you know couple of things that aren't included, and you just sort of wish they were. That's all. Mm-hmm. Although, if I remember correctly, the uh, the concert for Bangladesh also was not included in the uh, the Apple years. The right. CD box set. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it may be sort of an accounting issue, you know, because that's, I, I that's think still, so, I believe, yeah. a charity kind yes. of thing. But, um, yeah. you know, you could take care of the accounting issues internally. You know, it's like, okay, you know, what the receipts are for this part of this, you know, you know, X percent actually accounts for Bangladesh, and therefore that should go to wherever it's supposed to go. And, you know, but still include it. I don't know. Do you think it has? Do you think it has a is a is a rights thing because of all the individual performers? Do you think that has anything to do with it? Well, I guess that's possible too. But they are but, able mm, to reissue would, it separately. Think, but you would think that that would have been taken care of. Yeah, you know, before the last CD came out. Right. Mm-hmm. Or uh, yeah, even before that, when the vinyl came out, I mean, that would have been you would have thought part of the deal, but you know, who knows where we are at this point in, you know, time, you know, this far down the road. I don't, you know, right. maybe, kind of, maybe, maybe Alan Klein knows. Yeah. Maybe yeah. <laughs> somewhere <laughs> out there on the other should we side. Ask, we ask yeah. him? <laughs> <laughs> right. And actually you just reminded me of something, which is what about the concert for George? Oh, well, where does oh. that fall under? That's not technically a George Harrison album, although it's a right. tribute to George. Yeah. So I guess that wouldn't count as part I of the thing. So. I would yes. not. No, no. I think I we're, so. you know, I think we're counting just the things that he's on and did, mm. and you know, mm-hmm. but, um, right. Well, if anything, I think this proves that there's enough of a demand in vinyl these days to warrant doing something like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the John Lennon vinyl box set that came out as well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's just nice that they're addressing this. And I do know that Danny has said that he's a big vinyl fan, so mm. that could be part of the reason why. But, you know, we could argue back and forth, as we have mm. <laughs> many times on this show, what should come out, 
will it ever come out, what they should do, what they shouldn't do, on and on and on. But the fact of the matter is that the Beatles group and solo have a certain amount of standards that mm-hmm. they set, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they want what they feel is the best quality that they can deliver. And Danny doesn't... was actually kind of, there was, a, there was a quote from Danny, it was probably about a year ago, where he was kind of upset that people were complaining to him, you know, what's taking so long. And I think that his, his response was that he's, he's got to comb through the archives and pick what he feels his father would be proud of, what he, what he you know, would approve, at least what Danny thinks his father would approve. And, and who's to question Danny or Olivia? You know, who, who knew George better than them? Mm-hmm. Well, so. at least, at least the, the CD and the DVD are still apparently in print so that's i mean that's a good thing you know, that you can still you can still buy them um you mean bangladesh yes mm. yes at least that's the case although the uh the special version has gone up a little bit in price but the the regular version uh is still available so at least they're mm-hmm. like i say at least they're still available so mm. okay and another news item and this is a big one is that Paul McCartney is suing Sony or Sony ATV for the publishing rights to the Beatles catalog, which I, I thought I heard this every few years you hear about mm, this. Right. So what's the difference now? Can anyone explain that? I know, Alan, you've done a lot of reading on this, and you, Steve? Well, the difference is that he's actually filed the lawsuit. There's been a lot of stories that he want, that he wanted the rights back. I mean, there were all these... Uh, rumors that he was hoping to get his rights back and and people were speculating what he might do uh or whether he was going to do anything but he has finally done it and and well in, i i think he couldn't right get on. his rights back until 2018 this is what they're right. talking about and and he hinted at that a little bit a few years ago mm-hmm. he was you know when they were talking again about is he going to try and buy the atv back, catalog back he said something like well you know at a, at a certain point i kind of won't have to and no one knew exactly what he meant but it turns out when you you read the 16 pages of the lawsuit talks about termination rights, um, which he gets at a certain point, and that point is 2018. And the reason he filed the suit now, from what I gather from reading the suit, is that there was uh, a case recently with Duran Duran where an English court ruled that, yeah, there are termination rights, but um, in England we don't necessarily have to go by what the American copyright law termination rights are. The contracts between the label and the artist are paramount from the British point of view. Um, And as we know from last week's episode, British law is very, very different (laughs) (laughs) than American law. And uh, yeah, so so Paul explanation last week that was wonderful. Can anybody, if you guys, uh, people out there, if you didn't hear Alan talking about British law last week, go back and listen to that show. (laughs) So I think I think he's filing it now because this is coming up in 2018, which is like a year away, and he's looking. Looking at the Duran Duran lawsuit, he's looking at Sony possibly saying, well, we're going to go with that holding. And he just wants to know that in 2018, when he wants to exercise his termination rights, 
he'll be able to. It's kind of a preemptive thing. It's like, I don't want to wait until 2018 and then have to file suit, and then the suit goes on for three years. I want to know now, or am I going to get my um, rights back? And, you know, apparently, according to the 1976 copyright law, he has that right. And he's just asserting it now, which kind of makes sense. He's being proactive. And and Sony, in response, said uh, that the suit was filed prematurely, which I thought was an interesting comment, which kind of – I don't know if that means that they had planned on – you know, talking with him at some point or something. I, I, you know, I don't know, but that's that was an interesting development. Their reaction to this whole thing. Yeah, maybe it is. And, and you know, basically, I mean, if I were Paul McCartney and or Eastman and Eastman, I would be saying, okay, well, the response we wanted to hear was, well, of course you can have your termination rights in mm-hmm. 2018. All they said was, well, it's a little too early. So, right. you know, I, I, I think that basically by saying that as their response, they basically vindicated his reason mm-hmm. to file the suit. Yeah, right, right. It was interesting, by the way, uh, the first thing I noticed for people who have not seen the suit, look up the Hollywood Reporter version of the story. It is attached to their story. Uh, 17 pa- or 16 pages you can download for free. But I thought the first thing that was interesting was in the upper right-hand corner, it said Eastman and Eastman. I'm going, whoa, look at that. They're still uh, attached to McCartney. That's pretty oh, interesting. Oh, sure. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, John Eastman and Lee Eastman. Their their names are there in black and white. So they're oh really, yeah, they're representing yeah. And, and others too. I mean, he's got looks like he's got a whole bunch of lawyers, but they're uh, but they're the ones uh, uh, representing Paul. The other thing that was interesting, um, uh, somebody I know on on Facebook said uh, noticed it too. He's asking for a jury trial. Can you imagine how many people are going <laughs> to get onto that jury? Yeah, I'm raising my hand right now. Definitely, I'm I'm, I'll serve. <laughs> you and about three million other people. I mean, right? It, but it's in New York, and so for once, I'm not in the New York yeah. jury pool when I can. <laughs> exactly. Darn. I'll I'll yeah. go in your place, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> but just to be clear about this, this only pertains to the U.S. copyright, the publishing rights in the U.S. Correct? Right. Okay. And if I'm not mistaken. Doesn't this have to do with the fact that after a certain amount of time, and I think it's 56 years, that the the songwriting, the publishing rights go back to the the songwriters? Right. Mm -hmm. So is this going to be a gradual thing where, say, in 2018, Paul gets just the 1962 songs, and then in 2019, he gets the 1963 songs, or does he get all of them all at once? That's a good question. I I, I don't know. It, it also should be, uh, and Alan, you can confirm this, we're not talking about all of the songs. There are several songs that are not included right. in this lawsuit. Right, only so the stuff not... that was in ATV, so... Mm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and so let all, me all do... The... Let me do in P.S. I Love You or not in there. I think. Right, but right. He, he already owns those. So mm-hmm. mm, That's right. That's why he did P.S. Let Me Do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And also, how, how does this, 
where, where does Yoko fit in? Yeah. She made apparently a, a, spe- a, a separate agreement with Sony about the treatment of John's part of the catalog. So um, this is just to do with Paul's part of the cat. Right. It's not really a part of the catalog in the, in the sense of which songs John wrote, which songs Paul wrote. I mean, they're, they're all Lennon McCartney songs for publishing purposes, but Sony would be paying her a royalty and they would be paying McCartney a royalty. And she's made a deal to do with how her part of that royalty is administered. Um, and so this is just to do with, with, with Paul's side of it. Okay. And you know it's it's funny if if she had filed suit first and he had not how many people would have would have looked at her motives I bet you that would have that would have happened but mm-hmm. you know Ooh. but of course it has not happened with Paul and and it shouldn't with either one of them because according to the law they're looking out for their individual rights and that's what they have a right to do yeah so, mm-hmm. so but I'm just saying there would have been that speculation, especially in social media, about what she had about what she had done. I have one other news item when we when we get through that we didn't mention before when we were talking mm-hmm. up. Um, uh, I think I was just going to bring up probably the same thing. Speaking of Yoko, right? Ah, yes, okay. you are. You are indeed correct, sir. Right. So um, for. Uh, uh, People who may not be aware of this, on Saturday, there were any number of giant rallies uh, around the country, you know, women's women's uh, rights rallies, uh, and one of them was in New York, and uh, and in fact Yoko was uh, was photographed uh, at uh, at the uh, at the New York rally, and um, she was uh, in a wheelchair. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's been known for some months that she's, you know, she's having, she's 84 years old, you know, and she's having a, she's, you know, obviously has a tough time getting around now. I think that's why she wasn't really seen very much at the, you know, for instance, the eight days a week um, uh, premiere and uh, she didn't come on stage at the, 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 the love anniversary show. Cetera, no, but she, she she was there, and in fact, right. Um, but she didn't come up on stage. No, but she when she, I was going to say when she she did come down the red carpet, she had somebody. Uh, she, yes. she was on the arm of somebody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she was walking extremely slowly, and I mm-hmm. and she walked right by me, and I kind of you know, and I kind of noticed that. I mean, and she had been sick. Was it uh, last January? Yeah, I think she got the flu. I think it was the flu. The flu. I didn't look it up, but I believe it was the flu. And mm. she was down for for several days. And you know, anybody that has an elderly parent knows that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, whether she had a flu or pneumonia, I can't remember. But that kind of a serious illness on somebody that age can be very devastating and sometimes fatal. And, you know, and she was really lucky to come out of that. And apparently that, you know, this is, you know, it's an on kind of ongoing recovery thing for her. And it's good that I'm glad she was out there, but, and, uh, and as Al pointed out to me on social media, uh, you know, the fact of her standing, uh, standing up through that whole march would have been very tough on her, and oh, that's yeah. very, that is very, very true. That yeah. is very true. Uh, yep. 
But it's also, you know, it's also kind of worth noting that, you know, if she was in a wheelchair, she went and obviously meant a lot to her because she could very Mm -hmm. easily have just stayed home and said, you know what, I don't want to go out in a wheelchair, I don't want to go out in the cold. All kinds of reasons. This obviously meant was important to her. So right, absolutely. I gave I gave her a tremendous amount of credit for for being there and and braving. I mean, those were some tough. I mean, big big crowds and oh huge. uh, Yeah, and I mean, I I gave her a tremendous amount of credit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm just so happy that she participated because she's one of the biggest champions ever when it comes to women's rights. Absolutely. And she was there at the forefront early on. She sure was. just uh, really happy that she was a part of it. And and you know and you know John would have been there too, despite the f- the fact there are people who have said that John got conservative in his old age. I really kind of doubt. I I really think he would have been there. I, you know, I agree. He didn't really have an old age, actually. No. Well, <laughs> yeah. And but, and, uh, and uh, you know he was so chameleon like. And so changeable that it's, you know, it's impossible to speculate what a 76-year-old John Lennon would, would be like. Mm, I, think in this, if, I think in this case, it actually is possible to speculate. Right. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. There's so yep. many times when John and Yoko are on the same page with everything. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. hard to imagine John not feeling something for this movement and for what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. In, in the in the country, yep, and how the whole world's responding to it, not just the U.S. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, it's times like these that also when nine eleven happened, what I miss John the most because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'd love to hear what you know his thoughts about what's going mm-hmm. on in the world mm-hmm. politically Very, and socially. So right, very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to our main topic, which is, and this is actually one that was Kit's idea. And as soon as she presented it to me, I said, that's a great idea. So let's go with it. And uh, it happens to be turning points in the Beatles' careers, uh, I guess mainly as a group. And I'm sure that she was probably thinking more musical than anything else, although I know Steve has other things he wants to bring up in this, in this particular category. Maybe you might just want to explain what you meant by turning points and give a few examples yourself, Kit. Sure. Well, I, you know, I, I first uh, came up with this idea from um, a conversation I had a while back with a, a good friend of mine who is a first generation fan. And I asked her, you know, I, I said, I've always been curious what the reaction was when Strawberry Fields Forever was first released, because that was such a turning point, you know, and not that I think, you know, that they're fans were necessarily thinking that at the time, but it's something that when you hear it, you just immediately think, wow, that is entirely different, you know, from what they've done before. I mean, you know, it was an indicator that they were going in another direction, you know, and that really got me to thinking about even before Strawberry Fields Forever, you know, what were moments, and, you know, I I was mainly thinking about music, but you can definitely expand this to other things as well what was the moment where when you know you heard something or you saw something you know they did where you thought this is something that is new that they haven't done before you know and is an indicator of a new direction that we were that they were going in and you know what what is it about that song about that event whatever it is that made you think they are moving on to a new, a new era, a new phase, 
a new a new direction. So that's what I was thinking about. And so and I'll tell you, I don't know if you guys found this. This was a lot harder to narrow down than I thought it would be. <laughs> As I, I, I came up with, you know, I thought, oh, a few songs. I could probably come up with, you know, a few songs that are really obvious. And then, then the list started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But I'm only, I'm only going to mention a few. And the few that I, I came up with, I decided to talk about songs pre-Revolver. Because Revolver itself, you know, the whole album, you could argue, um, mm-hmm. was was the, you know, a watershed moment, you know, a, a real game changer and, and a change in direction. So I thought, what about before that? You know, what are what are some indicators? So um, just some examples. Uh, Beatles for Sale, um, I think, had some moments on there that were some indicators of where they were going. And one of them uh, is I'm a Loser. You know, this is something, you know, Dylan is starting to creep into their work at this point, and it was a very different kind of viewpoint that, that John was, was giving, and it was more introspective. And this is something that, of course, he would continue, you know, throughout the rest of his career with the Beatles and the solo years. But this is the, well, really early indicator of it. You know, definitely not lyrics that you would think of in a typical pop song. You know, uh, also the the acoustic uh, element of it certainly foreshadows Rubber Soul. And so I think I remember hearing that song for the first time, you know, when I first started getting into the Beatles and thinking, wow, this doesn't sound like anything they had done up until that point. Another on Help, I think this is an important song that we take for granted, you know, which is Yesterday. Now, you know, we're so used to hearing that. You know, we, we've heard the you know, most covered song in history. We're so used to it that I don't think we always think about just how how revolutionary that mm-hmm. song was at the time. And, of course, yeah. the first time they incorporated strings, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, that this is something that they would further explore. But this was the first time. I also think this was a turning point in certainly Paul McCartney's songwriting. But um, certainly a turning point for the Beatles in general. I mean, this was mature. You know, this was mature songwriting. This was very introspective and kind of had a multi-generational appeal. I mean, I would think, and maybe you guys can, you know, tell me, parents who would have maybe previously dismissed them as just another rock and roll act, you know, how could you deny yesterday? I mean, Mm -hmm. how could you deny... The, yeah. the power of that and the sophistication mm-hmm. of that, you know. Um, so I think that was a turning point. And then Rubber Soul had a lot of turning points. <laughs> this mm-hmm. was really hard to narrow down. Norwegian Wood with the sitar, you know, that was uh, that was a huge. And the lyrics, I mean, this was poetry, you know, and and abstract. I mean, this wasn't. I want to hold your hand for sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, watch it. Now when he burns down the, uh, the house. In terms of theme. No, not in terms of that, but I mean it was, what I mean is in, in terms of theme and sound, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Um, and same thing with uh, Nowhere Man. I think that yes. was also, I mean, mm-hmm. the lyrics of that song are, are just uh, something completely different. Um, I love how they turn... The, the lyrics, you know, as they're talking about Nowhere Man and then when, when um, John sings, isn't he a bit like you and me? Mm-hmm. I mean, now they're turning it back toward the audience, but it's a more philosophical kind of thing. And finally, and I write about this in, in, thing, in uh, um, 
songs we were singing, which was The Word. This yes. is a this was what really a preview of not only the summer of love, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. but a preview of what they would explore. You know, the psychedelia on Sgt. Pepper, on Magical Mystery Tour, of course, on All You Need Is Love. I mean, the the most obvious one. But this is now, now they're talking about love in a different sense. You know, they're they're now moving a bit beyond the romantic uh, songs. And they're talking about love as something different, you know. And I just remember the first time hearing that song thinking, boy, this is, you can hear them turning, you know, they're changing as you as you hear this song, they're changing in in theme, they're changing in sound, and it's the perfect preview of what was to come. So those are just a, a few of of the the songs that I chose. It's for thematic reasons, for sound, for instrumentation uh, that I feel were indicators of where they were, what was to come, and sort of as they were moving away from what I call Beatles 1.0 you know, the, the earlier years. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear what, what you guys think and particularly you first generation fans in this group, you know, what (laughs) your reactions are, where were you first heard these songs? Well, you know something, kid, they have such an advantage over you and me. Yeah, I know. Because they got to hear it as it was coming out and chronologically. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. You got to realize it's a, it's a different experience for other people who may not have heard the music in that order. Exactly. You know, they, you could have started out, some people probably started out with Sgt. Pepper, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, hey, yeah, or, or Abbey Road problem. or something. So they hear the music in a different way. That's right. And, and those who grew up hearing all the changes. Yeah, even, we have a more know, historical perspective. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Let's hear from Al on this one. Okay. Uh, well, actually, for my first selection, I go back actually even farther than Kit did. And um, uh, now this is kind of 2020 hindsight because this was really before the Beatles even hit America. Uh, and that would be She Loves You, mm. which was uh, it was kind of was the, the record that kind of uh, broke the uh, broke the format uh, you might say, because uh, their first three singles, the uh, as I saw the as I call it the the twenty minutes that they were a boy band, the first three singles were all you know uh, guitar, harmonica, you know very you know relatively simple. Uh, she loves you. Uh, first of all, dispensed with the harmonica, and had a much bigger sound to it. I mean, it's you know it, uh, it comes. You know, even today, when you play it, it comes roaring out of the speakers. Mm. And uh, much in the way that I want to hold your hand did, as a matter of fact. Uh, so it, uh, so that was definitely a, uh, you know, a game changer, uh, if you will. The second one, Kit mentioned it before, and that's uh, I'm a Loser. Uh, and um, exactly what Kit was saying, that it was the first song in which John showed the, uh, the influence, uh, the influence of Bob Dylan. And I remember specifically seeing the Beatles perform, uh, I'm a loser on Shindig in October of 1964. So this is a couple of months before, uh, Beatles 65 slash Beatles for sale, uh, even came out. And it was uh, it was uh, it was it was very different from uh, what you normally would kind of associate as being Beatles music, even even that early on. 
So uh, I'm a Loser certainly has to be on there. Uh, The third one comes actually from the same side, the same LP side, from which yesterday came on the uh, the at least the British Help album, although it was here, it was on uh, Beatles '65, and that's "Tell Me What You See," um, because that's that song, both instrumentally and harmonically, and in terms of the vocal arrangement, again, it was very different from what we had come to kind of associate as Beatles music. And it really kind of pointed uh, pointed the way toward the musical changes that they were beginning to go through. Uh, this was Beatles 65 was one of those uh, crazy quilt collections of all kinds of singles and unused LP tracks and things. But there were a couple of uh, actually three new quote-unquote new songs on there and the only one that wasn't uh, uh that wasn't a cover of those three songs that were the two larry williams covers the only original of them uh actually the two originals one was george harrison's uh, you like me too much and uh and the other one was uh was tell me what you see uh and but uh tell me what you see definitely kind of pointed the way toward a new direction uh, in their music. Number four is, um, um, <laughs> obviously, I mean, we talked a lot about it on, uh, actually, I guess it was last week, uh, was Strawberry Fields Forever. Mm-hmm. Because, let's face it, that, you know, it was the first, uh, the first song they recorded for what became uh, the sessions that, origin- that eventually produced Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and it was, you know, just a huge departure, you know, in, in every, every way you could, uh, you can think of. As I said, we talked about this last week, so I don't want to be too redundant, but it was, uh, it's definitely uh, a, a game changer. Mm-hmm. No question about it. And the, and the fifth one, and this is kind of with 2020 hindsight. You know, we didn't really think of it as, as being sort of a, you know, a musical turning point or a game changer when it came out. But um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, <laughs> because that, that song really, really shows the, you know, the arrival of George Harrison as a as really a, a songwriting peer to Lennon and McCartney, and uh, and also it kind of uh, you know looks toward also um, the uh, his solo his solo career in that uh, in that he's uh, you know his sort of guitar partner on the track is Eric Clapton, which of course had not. That had not happened before on a Beatles record that, that an outside, you know, there had been outside musicians, but not using the, you know, the, the normal Beatle instrumentation, um, you know, of guitar, bass uh, and drums. Eric Clapton was, uh, was the second guitarist on that track. And so that kind of, uh, to me at least, kind of points the way toward uh toward george's uh solo career so those are for me those are five game changers um however you want to put it Hmm. well i have a few questions to ask you based on 
your choices there. Okay. Um, first of all, with, with regard to While My Guitar Gently Weeps, you said that was the first time that you recognized George as being, you know, kind of a no, 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 no. That's not what I said. Now, what I said was that that is, and again, this is twenty twenty hindsight. Uh-huh. Uh, that's it's the song where you where now we you know we realize that that's that's where George really became, you know, even though he had been doing fine work mm-hmm. up to up to then. But that's the song that really kind of made him a, you know, appear to Lennon McCartney as a as a songwriter. And that, you know, and frankly, it may have had something to do with how, you know, unenthusiastic uh, they were about, you know, about the the amount of new material that he that he kept bringing to the sessions, you know, specifically the get back sessions. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, that they felt that obviously they they felt threatened by sure, it. Uh-huh. sure. But uh, yeah. but I think that that's that. While my guitar gently weeps is the is the song that kind of really kind of uh, cements George's uh, George's role as a songwriter in the group. Huh. Do you think that at that time the world was seeing things that way too? No, because no. if if. You know, if you go back, I mean, I love all the early stuff that George did that he wrote as well. But mm-hmm. once you're getting into Revolver, and, and he wrote Taxman. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, a song like that, you would you would have to stand back and say, wow. I mean, look at the jump right there. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What he's writing. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would have hoped that maybe fans, first-generation fans growing up would have noticed that. And, and I love the stuff before that, too. But, oh, sure. Know, oh, so did I. So did I. Yeah. I mean, you like me too much. I need you. Where are among my favorite uh, songs from the you know the earlier the earlier Beatles period. But we uh, yeah I mean we certainly we certainly admired you know his his output, but we weren't really thinking in terms of well he's on the same level as Lennon and McCartney. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean if I needed someone got attention and, and the Beatles sure. performed live too. Oh so. yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And the only thing I would question is, tell me what you see. I know mm-hmm. that you brought up that song in, in a previous show, but uh, I don't know if I hear everything that you hear in that song. I love the song. Don't get me wrong. And I love the um, uh, now being uh, uh, Alan would probably be uh, could probably be more expert at uh, at explaining explaining it, but it but just harmonically. It's just it's very unusual for that period of the Beatles development. You know, it's um, and, and also even the instrumental uh, backing, you know, with the harmonium uh, that really had not been. You know, I think there may have been one or two songs. Yes, it is uh, mm. where they had used the harmonium. But um but it just it's it it always it struck me certainly at the time and it's always struck me as being you know a little different from what they were what they were turning out at that at that particular point in in their development as you know as per as songwriters and as performers hmm. did you want to add something to that alan what what al just said no i think he he basically uh got it you know, it, it, nothing more I can add about it, really. Right. Okay. Steve, how about your thoughts? 
Um, I did it a little differently. Um, instead of just musical game cha- musical game changers, my I combined events and music, so I have a little of both. The first one would be the meeting the meetings of John and Paul, and then the the uh, uh, admission of Ringo into the group. The me, uh, it's hard to separate those two things. The you know the John and Paul meeting uh, um, was is now looked upon as one of the most you know historic meetings in music history and you know from who knew from that you know that was there uh in that little church that day that you know that was uh going to turn into what it did and then letting Ringo in I don't think a lot of people really grabbed the significance of that until Mark Lewison you know wrote it wrote it out in in his book and so I think that the two of them together, I mean, those were the John and Paul obviously was the game changer that made the Beatles happen. But Ringo was the one that really pushed them forward. I mean, they've as they've said that they've all said that. So so that would be the first. The second would be Meet the Beatles, which um, I mean, there's a lot of moments in musically. And I had I went back over I over several uh, moments uh in those days, uh, musical moments, but Meet the Beatles because of the the impact it had yeah, on culture. I mean, I, I remember it being everywhere. You couldn't get away from seeing that picture, that cover picture, and the back picture, and just seeing the albums everywhere. Certainly, not none of the the groups, you know, none of the acts today that have any kind of impact had the uh, you know had that kind of impact uh or would have had that kind of impact in 1964 the beatles have you know were pioneers in that kind of thing so and then from there the ed sullivan show i mean i can remember sitting down and watching it and and you know hearing the commotion in the in the room we were divided in, in our family uh, uh my sister and i were both very excited my parents not so, my father especially not so, and it took him until the Rolling Stones to get really, uh, you know, to where he appreciated who the Beatles were, which was kind of interesting. But, um, and in fact, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but as far as seeing the Beatles as a group, he got closer to them than the rest of us did, because Ooh. he he was an appliance repairman, and he was driving in um, in Boston. And he said uh, he told he came home one day and he said, all of a sudden this police motorcade comes by and we had to pull I had to pull over, and he said, guess who was in the motorcade? And we all yelled at him. We go, no, no, because <laughs> we didn't get to go. They didn't let us go see them, but he saw that he got closer to him than we did. <laughs> so anyway, the next one would be Sergeant Pepper because of the uh, it, it it was the blossoming of the studio. Um, that started with uh, a Rubber Soul and Revolver, and then went even further with with Abbey Road. So I mean, but Sgt. Pepper was the was the album that, uh, if there's one album where you can indicate the the genius of what they did, that's got to be that's got to be the album right there. You know, with all the uh, with the not only with the the music, but the the not banding the songs and having them run into each other, printing the lyrics on the back, the the uh, the things that were included inside the album, the 
the cutouts, which were, uh, I mean, that was all revolutionary back then. I remember pulling the cutouts out and just kind of looking at them and saying, never touching these, never going to cut them up. And I never did. Never did. And then finally, the last game changer would have to be the McCartney album because Ooh. of the fact that it was the end. Uh, as much as a lot of us did not appreciate that, and I still remember hearing the uh, the news report on the radio where the reporter was almost gleeful in saying, the Beatles are breaking up. And we were, I was going, what? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, obviously the McCartney album was, was, a, it was a game changer. You know, they went forward as four individuals from that point on. And uh, so, therefore, and there you go. Okay. Any, any hmm. thoughts? Not much to argue about there. <laughs> I mean, they're all worthy turning points, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think Steve, you made a you made a great point uh, when you talked about the Sgt. Pepper album about the lyrics being printed. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that was definitely uh, an important you know milestone in in Beatles, and also I you know and kind of in rock in general. I mean, you know, this was something that's inviting, you know, inviting you to consider that these aren't, you know, these weren't just words. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this was this was something to be taken seriously. This was art, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and just like the whole album was inviting you to do that. But right. yeah, just that simple act, seemingly simple act of printing the lyrics on there. I think that's a very good point. That is a that is another kind of game changer for them and and for rock music in general and it was and and they also i mean their work um concept albums uh in those days um one i can think of uh, just off the top of my head that i i never really liked it back then but was uh but it was was um pretty things sf sorrow yep um But the Beatles really, really did a much better job, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I, I like I said, I never really liked the Pretty Things uh, mm. at all. But uh, but uh, I mean, Sgt. Pepper was a was a, a great album in every respect. So, but didn't you feel that the albums before Sgt. Pepper were great too? Oh yeah, no, no, I wasn't I wasn't demeaning them at all. I was just saying that. Mm-hmm. It, uh, Sergeant Pepper stood out for what it was, for what it was, and what it did. And um, I, I mean, I like I said, I I remember taking that home and just kind of looking at it and 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 being stunned by what they had done, because I mean, really, you know, I I don't know uh, I, I don't know how you felt, Al, but I mean, it was mm-hmm. it, when you were looking at the new Beatle albums as they were coming along. They were doing things that nobody expected that, that, you know, even, you know, those of us that were with them from the beginning were going, huh? You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And, and, and even, even disc jockeys and I, and I've told the story of hearing Dan Ingram on WABC say that, you know, that he didn't understand what Stra- Strawberry Fields mm-hmm. was all about. And, and he wasn't alone. I mean, they were traveling on a road that not too many people were traveling on. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure we'll be t- talking much more about this as we get closer to June. Yeah. But uh, but the uh, the the release of Sergeant Pepper was an absolute event, and mm-hmm. and it's one of those deals where I mean a, a lot of us can remember exactly you know <laughs> a lot of us 
can remember a lot of things from the 60s where we know exactly where we were and what we were doing. But uh, I'm, I'm sure most of us can remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when we first laid eyes on that on that album cover mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. perhaps, uh, you know, put it on uh, on the turntable. What, uh, let me let me ask a question. Um, did you guys hear the mono or the stereo first? Mono. mono. Yeah, same here. And it, uh, can you too? I'm not sure. I know. I'm <laughs> As a little kid, you know, I, I don't Probably remember what by, it was. Probably yeah, mono. Yeah, I'm guessing mono. Because because I didn't hear the stereo for many many years after. I would say at least ten years. I I never. I had a, my my first was a because all we had was one of those. You know, big uh, record. Uh, it was a Sears record player. And Probably it was not ten years, and, Steve. Ten years I, means you didn't hear Sgt. Pepper in stereo till around the time the Hollywood Bowl album came out. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's not very positive. I mean, I you like, think well, it's possible. Uh, Maybe no, five. It might, been, it, might, it might have been a little. You're right. Probably a couple yeah. of years later. But I mean, I didn't have a stereo record player for a long time. So, hmm. yeah. But it, it was many years later. Uh, it was several years later when I first heard Sgt. Pepper in stereo. Mm-hmm. So, mm. And it was great, by the way, when the mono box came out, hearing it again in yeah, mono. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because it, it was like, you know, going back in time again, you know. Yeah. So. yeah. Although for totally sentimental reasons, I still have my original mono copy mm-hmm. of Sgt. Pepper. <laughs> nice. I'm not sure if I do or not, um, but uh, I, I, I know I know I have a mono vinyl somewhere, but I don't know if it's the original one. I'll bet but. you that my first copy was stereo, and I wouldn't have known the difference because I was eight years old then, mm-hmm. and I had a very cheap record player where the, the speakers were very close to each other, oh, so it yeah. wouldn't have made any difference sure. anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what we had to deal with in those days. I mean, by a certain mm-hmm. point, only stereo was available. You know, yes. So, and, and right. It wasn't good, that much after good. Pepper, really. You know, by by sixty nine, sixty nine, it was yeah. hard to find mm-hmm. mono albums. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, oh, Alan. Well. Alan, I'm eager to hear yours. Okay. Um, you know, I was convinced as I was thinking about this during the week, and I'm even more convinced, having heard what all of you have to say, that. <laughs> Absolutely everything the Beatles did was a game changer. I mean, <laughs> I mean, in terms of, you know, what Kit said about us listening to them as they were coming out, I mean, it was always different. You never knew yeah. what to expect. Yeah. You know, I mean, Lady Madonna, everything. You know, when the new single came out, it was not like the old single. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the new album, the same thing. And, it, and you know, we just sort of took for granted that things should be that different. And, and they weren't also like what everybody else was doing apart from what they had been doing. It was just always something new. But mm-hmm. to focus on, you know, um, five or so of them, um, the first one would be sort of wisdom of hindsight because it wasn't something I heard when it came out, which was please, please me. You know, we didn't yes. really get that yet. But right. uh, to me, it's a game changer because there is a huge leap in both songwriting and sound and production between that and its predecessor, Love Me Do, and mm-hmm. the few early earlier Lennon-McCartney things that had come out, and even the non-Lennon-McCartney things that, that 
you know were on that they had done up until then i mean on the first album uh please please me really leaps out i mean i saw her standing there does two but it's more of a conventional rocker but please please me the vocal harmonies the harmonica which is as you pointed out they dropped you know pretty quickly um yes. <laughs> but you know i mean there was just every something about that sound was just so incredible and um and it was so energetic and it's like two minutes long and a lot happens in it and uh so that's Very the first true. one second one i guess would be you know, again, something I picked up on later because we didn't quite get it at the time, but the British Hard Day's Night album, their first album of all originals um, oh. and all really great originals. So, you know, for us, what we heard, we heard, um, you know, the, the film songs and we heard some other stuff that, you know, had gotten on to, well, from the the EP uh, from Wontel Sally EP that came out mm -hmm. on Beatles second album and stuff on something new. We yeah. like, we got that album kind of piecemeal, but when you look at the British album, I mean, it is just an incredible leap, you know, uh, from with the Beatles, which was great or meet the Beatles, which was great to hard days, night, all new, all their own stuff. And, such a great variety of stuff too i mean th things we said today <laughs> you know i mean just song by song it's it's just uh there there are no uh second drawer things not that there were many second drawer things throughout the whole recording yeah. career but um you know, so that's one. I was going to pick Norwegian Wood because of the use of the sitar, which, uh, you know, led to other things for them for the next couple of years. Um, but Kit picked that one. So I'll just simply endorse Kit and move on Thank to <laughs> and move on to <laughs> Tomorrow Never Knows, which is the first track mm. they recorded for mm. Revolver. And, you know, you got tape loops, you got all kinds of foreign sounds, let's say foreign in the sense that they're not just the Beatles playing their guitars, bass and drums forwards, <laughs> you know, um, you know, it kind of in a way, even though Revolver has all kinds of stuff on it, um, some of which may have been a little bit older, like you know, uh, here, there and everywhere and is, and is basically in the older song format than tomorrow never knows. I mean, and it all holds mm. together brilliantly. Tomorrow never knows was kind of the leap for me, you know, compositionally. <laughs> and from there I would move on to the very first track they recorded for the white album, which was revolution. And I would include all three revolutions because you know, you don't get a Beatles trilogy of songs um, like you do mm. here. And and what you have here is, you know, John's first version of it, uh, the single version, which was done sort of at the insistence of the others because he wanted Revolution 1 to be the single. And they felt that a sort of acoustic slow single wasn't quite the order mm. of the day. And so it's not really as if he conceived it as a trilogy that that develops from the, you know, slow, maybe we'll have a revolution to the faster. Now it's kind of, 
you know, electricity and energy in the air to the absolute chaos of revolution number nine. But however it worked out, it worked out that way. And what you have now is a three panel picture of revolution kind of building up slowly and then just being chaotic and terrifying. And so you, in addition, have, you know, the Beatles making a political comment and making a political comment that isn't necessarily in step with what everybody was talking about at the time with the more mm-hmm. the more radical end of it. I mean, they're saying revolution, well, you know, but think about what you want. You do want mm-hmm. do you want violence, you want destruction, you know, count me out. But obviously they wanted something. I mean, they had been talking about it. They had already been talking about their their uh disapproval or dislike of the war and and they talked about civil rights they did all kinds of things they knew that something had to change but they were just saying think about how you want the change to happen and the picture that they draw on revolution number nine which is you know built upon the the play out outtake from revolution number one is, you know, really, you know, everybody doesn't like that track, but I've said a million times already, it's one of my favorite things because it's so, I think it's brilliant as a piece of music concrete, as a piece of electronic music. It's, you know, it's incredible and it paints a really specific, really vivid picture that's part of that trilogy. Um, so how many of I? One, two, three, four, five, if you count Norwegian Wood. So my last one would be Get Back. (laughs) Get Back was a game changer in a way simply because they were going to do the opposite of what they had done so far, you know, um, which was they had grown over the years more and more complicated and complex and using the studio in a more and more sophisticated way. And with Get Back, the song, and Get Back, the album that it was was Mm. supposed to be, The idea was, let's just go to where we used to be, except that they're not the band that they used to be. They weren't going to be playing I Saw Her Standing There. Um, Mm -hmm. They were going to be playing new stuff and somewhat more complicated stuff. Um, And Get Back itself was, you know, was an incredible song, very refreshing. I remember when it came out, it just was like, okay, you know, we kind of are sitting there thinking we want more sergeant pepper or white album but this is pretty rollicking and it's you know a lot of fun i mean we didn't know yet the sort of semi-disaster that the get back let it be sessions would become and how it would sit on the shelf for you know so long until after abbey road and all that stuff the track just sounded like the beatles are up there having a great time mm. and um and the the return to simplicity was you know, that was a game changer at the moment, it seemed to me. So those were in a way, couldn't you say that the White Album was a back to basics? And that was before uh, Get Back. Well, back to Basics has got Revolution Number no. Nine on it. It's got orchestrated stuff on it. It's got all mm-hmm. kinds of things. It's got you know some of That's it is true. back to basics. I mean your blues is back to basics and well, back still, in the most USSR. Of the White Album. Most of the White Album is guitars, pianos, and drums. A lot of you it. You do have some, yeah. You have Good Night. You have, um, sure. you know, Mother Nature's Son even has some yeah. other things. Uh, you know, it, it's um, it's not as comp, you know, complex in the 
in the way they had been as Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. There's a lot of things that are several songs oh, yeah. that are just acoustic guitar, one acoustic guitar. But, uh, yeah, but there was still all kinds of variety, and it wasn't the band sitting there playing live, no overdubs, that kind of thing, which was the, the oh. ideal for Get Back. Remember, Get Back came out, and the, the ad was Get Back, the Beatles' as nature intended. Yep. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. And so that was kind of a message. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. In fact... Plus, we were could promised. I, Alan, we can were... I ask you a kind of a what if question? Yeah. Suppose they had not had those what are the two weeks or whatever of those rehearsals at Twickenham. Hmm. Uh, if they had, if <laughs> if Magic Alex had actually done his job correctly, and the Apple Studio had been actually ready to go right at the beginning of January, and they had you know, gone straight in there. Do you think the, the whole project would have been with the, you know, the vibe have been better? Well, I don't think the studio was the issue. I think that mm-hmm. the, the concept of the project is we're going to do this thing where we're going to play these new songs live. We're going to have our rehearsals filmed so that we can have a documentary before the live show, which was going to be the, mm. the culmination of the TV thing, which is why they were at Twickenham, or else they could have gone to Abbey Road. You know? Yeah. And it, I think it was just that, like, they didn't like Twickenham so much by yeah. by, by the yeah. end of those two weeks, and mm-hmm. plus George leaving and saying, plus, "I'm yeah, not going exactly. back there." Um, yeah. That going to the Apple Studio became a condition of of his return, um, with which they all agreed. They just didn't know there wasn't really going to be a studio there. Um, mm. But they obviously were dead set on not going back to Abbey Road at that point. They wanted yeah. they wanted to record in their own space, even if that meant bringing in portable EMI equipment. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it would have been the same because the the concept was show us getting our new songs together and then show us playing them in concert. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, it probably would have been similar. Mm. There were tensions, you know. I mean, some of the tensions, and I think it would be interesting to get to volume three of of Mark Lewison's book because maybe he'll get to the <laughs> bottom of this. But you know, you see tensions between George and Paul about whether they should play live and all that stuff. Yeah. And yet, before the sessions began, shortly after the White Album, George Harrison gave. An interview to I think the New Musical Express saying, "Yeah, you know, our next thing is we're going to put some stuff together. We're going to do a concert maybe at the Roundhouse." You know, he seemed mm. enthusiastic about it. Now, maybe he was just towing the company line. You know, the, that they had talked about that and sort of agreed. And you know, if if he was going to go out and talk publicly, it was going to be in positive terms. But it sounded from that interview as if he was into the idea of the Beatles getting together, doing a small concert of new stuff. So, by the mm. time they actually got working on it, he felt differently. Yeah. So. But we didn't know any of that stuff. We just heard Get Back come sure. out as the first right. single, you know, and and that just seemed like it was going to be a, like the start of something new, mm-hmm. something old and new, you know. Yes. <laughs> yep. Well, um, as far as my, my uh, 
my picks here. Before I even talk about those, I just want to say my comment about the White Album. Um, I do look at that as being a stark contrast from Sgt. Pepper and Revolver and Magical Mystery Tour because, you know, most of those songs were just the band. And I know there are those exceptions like Goodnight where there's orchestration and, you know, Revolution Number 9 and all that. But to me, when you're talking back to basics, I I certainly think that the White Album was a big shift coming from, you know, Pepper and, and then Magical Mystery Tour. I, I do uh, I do agree with your point there with uh, the Get Back, Let It Be stuff about the no overdubbing part. Mm-hmm. That makes a big difference right there. Mm. But anyway, um, turning points, kind of like what everybody here said. I mean, you pretty much said a lot of what I would have said. I know that, Kit, you brought up I'm a Loser, but mm-hmm. I've always pointed to the first three songs on Beatles for Sale as being so different and dark. Um, you know, no, yeah, reply. no reply. No reply you know, was one of the runners up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. reply. I'm a loser. And babies in black are such a contrast to a lot of the Beatles music prior to that. And mm. lyrically, so many of the early songs are all about boy girl relationships. I love you. You love me. You love him. I don't want you to love him. You know, <laughs> it's it's fairly simple stuff, but their lyrics were getting much more complicated and their relationships, especially, uh, you know, the John songs in particular, although there's some of Paul's where the relationships go sour, you know, it's not going in the direction where you're expecting it to go. It's not all happy go lucky music here. And so you've got three songs in a row that are like that with babies in black included. So I thought that was very different for its time, but also no reply the more that I hear no reply, I hear Roy Orbison in there. <laughs> hmm. there's, there's some running yeah. scared. There's some running scared in there or something. But mm-hmm. uh, I love that middle section. You know, the if I, if I were you, I'd realize yeah. that I that part. It's so separate from everything else from the song. Mm-hmm. And I love when they when they took that time to compose something that was separate from everything else. It wasn't just verse and chorus. It didn't just go the way you know, like most songs have a formula. And a lot of Beatles songs did not have formula to them. And, um, you know, I love those three songs back to back. I also think um, I Want to Hold Your Hand has got to be a a turning point, not only because it was the first song I ever heard from them, but it still sounds so fresh and so different from every all the other songs they had put in at that time. Although you could say that about other songs. She Loves You sounds different from the other songs the Beatles had put in at that time. But mm-hmm. there's a level of sophistication that the Beatles were were getting there, even early on. And, and one of my favorite shows that we ever did here was when we talked about with the Beatles and how we all kind of thought that there was a big contrast between Please Please Me and with the Beatles as an album mm-hmm. in terms of instrumentation, mm-hmm. sure. in terms of, uh, you know, uh, song structure, lyrics. You know, that's the beauty of studying the Beatles here is seeing progression even early on mm-hmm. uh, i don't know if you would call this a turning point but i think ever since i read what paul had said about there is a place i think there is a place is very different yeah. for its time because yeah. you know it, it's not necessarily talking about a relationship although briefly he does but he it's about looking inward you yeah. know and it's my mind and there's no time when i'm alone kind of foreshadowed strawberry fields forever Although Strawberry Fields is far more a complex a song. 
It does, does. It does, however, follow the Beach Boys in my room, which is quite similar. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was. I thought of the same thing, Alan. Yeah, but um, you know, I don't know if you call that a game changer because you know, if you're if you're making a comparison between there's a place, in Strawberry Fields, there's you know, three mm. years difference there, more yeah. than that. Yeah. So, um, and also, I have to say, like Kid had said yesterday, which mm. paved the way for Eleanor Rigby. All the classical stuff the Beatles were doing for no one, she's leaving home. Uh, there are certain songs that, and also because I think there have been classical arrangements of certain Beatles songs, you can hear how certain songs from the Beatles adapt themselves to a classical arrangement, like Martha My Dear, I think mm-hmm. has a Baroque feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Piggies as well. Yeah. Those songs. So I think <laughs> yesterday kind of paved the way for that. Yep. Um, it's only in recent years, while I've loved Revolver my whole life, that because it's gotten s- such, I hate to say newfound respect, but more respect now than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Because I, I appreciate the Beatles and their eclecticism more than anything else, this was the album where they really branched out the most first. And Revolver made it, I guess, it, you know, if I was younger now and I listened to the Beatles catalog now going, you know, from the beginning up through Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, I would think the transition from Revolver to Sgt. Pepper wouldn't seem so stark <laughs> because so much of what they did in Sgt. Pepper, they also did in Revolver mm-hmm. in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Love You Too led to Within You Without You. You know, uh, Eleanor Rigby led to She's Leaving Home. You know, Tomorrow Never Knows led to A Day in the Life and Mr. Kite and those songs. So the fact that they, they really branched out with Revolver, it, it, it led to being just as experimental and eclectic on Sgt. Pepper and even more so on the White Album. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I feel about Revolver. Those are the main ones. Tomorrow Never Knows, as a little kid, I always thought it was just such a weird track. <laughs> Me too. You know, Years later, you know, everybody's pointed to Tomorrow Never Knows as being a real game changer, and you could understand why. I mean, the last song on Revolver, it got you ready for Sgt. Pepper. And you could also say, you know, in between for Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. But, Mm. yeah, Tomorrow Never Knows, you got to say, is a game changer or a turning point. So those are, you know, some of the ones that I wrote down. Excuse me, can I ask you a question? Yeah. See, uh, uh, Revolver, uh, I'm not going to argue with you that Revolver did start, you know, what it did and led into Pepper, but you don't think that that they were really not completely settled on where they were going? Uh, My feeling is that they were, uh, Revolver was kind of an experiment, and Pepper was the result of that experiment. Do you you agree with that, or or do you think that Revolver was the the bigger move? Hmm. Well, the biggest move is going from Rubber Soul to Revolver. Mm-hmm. I think that's a bigger move mm-hmm. than Revolver to Sgt. Pepper. Okay. Because, you know, if you look at Rubber Soul as being very folk, you know, more simplistic in the arrangements, you know, and here, here all of a sudden you look at Revolver and you've got all the psychedelic music, you know, and the classical sounds of Eleanor Rigby and For No One and the Indian music. And, you know, there's so much Good Day Sunshine has got that, you know, dance hall feel to it, which, you know, 
led to When I'm 64, even though that was really an earlier song. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that all those different styles of music the Beatles did in Revolver, they took to another level on Sgt. Pepper. But, um, you know, I'm not saying Revolver is better. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's when you consider the fact they did that before Pepper and they branched out the way they did, it's it's so stunning to think they went from from Rubber Soul to Revolver for me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's why I ended up uh, deciding, you know, for my five basic picks to exclude Revolver because as I was going along and and writing, you know, jotting down songs, I was jotting down virtually every song off of Revolver. So I thought, okay, I think I need to go back a little further because yeah, there were so many yeah. revolutionary moments on that album, but but there were revolutionary moments before then. Sure, Obviously, you know. Yeah, oh, but Re- I, Revolver, yeah, definitely, because I can remember I can remember telling Candy Leonard uh, when she interviewed me for, for Beatleness about yeah. playing Revolver for friends of mine after I had gotten it. And, you know, and they were like, what is this? Hmm. You know, this doesn't sound like this isn't, you know, the, the Beatles that I know. Mm hmm. You know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, they were at that point, they were saying that they they thought the Rascals were a better band than the Beatles, you know, that Mm. sort of thing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I actually have a a question for for, you know, I hate to keep saying, you know, let me ask you first generation. The old old dinosaur. I don't mean like your I don't mean like your museum pieces or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Get me wrong. Yeah, you do. I'm just asking because you guys have the experience and Ken and I don't. You know, what was your reaction and, and you know, the reaction of your peers when you heard Rain? What what was that? Because that was such a departure, too. See, I, did, I, I don't know why, but I didn't, I wasn't at the point like I am now where I'm uh, analyzing everything so seriously. Yeah. In, in those days... The music was was hitting you, and and usually you'd hear it first on the radio. Yes, because you know whoever, you know whatever station you were listening to. I think at that point I was still listening to WMEX in Boston, and so one of the you know one of the the or WBZ, and mm-hmm. one of this got fair, especially in uh, in Boston, and when we did when we did when we talked about radio stations and listening to the Beatles on the radio in, in the, back in the day, the Boston stations had a habit of getting imports, Beatle imports, and playing them. Yeah. I don't know. Did they, 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 I, we talked about this before. Did, did WABC do that, Al? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was like, you know, as soon as, you know, both WMCA and WABC, if they could get a hold of an import of a you know a Beatles single that might have been released the week before, mm-hmm. or or especially the you know the albums with some of the different tracks, uh, they would absolutely put them on the air and right. uh, and then get a almost immediately get a cease and desist order <laughs> right. from, uh, from Nat yeah. Weiss. <laughs> One of the New York stations got mm-hmm. an advanced copy of the White Album, and some of the versions were different. It was it was, the, it was the, WNEW. Yeah. Not, okay. Uh, yeah, Are you sure it was and, WNEW? I thought it was yeah. WNEW because ABC... Oh, was it ABC? Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, it was ABC, AMN, FM. And it was the Peter Sellers tracks that Ringo had sent him. Somehow they made their way to... 
to certain radio stations. And because there were only about, I guess, what, about six or eight tracks. And they sounded like, you know, they had been recorded over the telephone. Yeah. I think there no, were, were. I think there were ten. I actually have a tape of maybe that. ten. Um, well, yeah. WAV, they played they played the the tape of that a few years ago on WABC Rewound, and I can't I don't remember yeah. that it was the Peter Sellers stuff, but I'll I'll take your word for it, Al. But I do remember they did play it, and I and I do remember hearing some of it and and say, you know and realizing that it wasn't you know the master tapes. It wasn't. Oh the, yeah, because it was oh, real low quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, and that was probably a, a, maybe a month before the album came out, and I can remember in '65 somehow Gary Stevens at WMCA in New York got a uh, somehow got a copy again. Sounded like it was recorded over the telephone of the night before, Ooh. and this is in the middle mm-hmm. of June of '65. So this is about mm. about two months before it actually came out here. Wow. It probably was recorded over the telephone. It probably was. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those were those were those were fun days when you know when when disc jockeys used to do that stuff. I mean you know and but again but again, getting back to what I was saying, Mm. you really didn't you really, I mean, obviously with something like Strawberry Fields, you had to sit there and go, what the hell are they doing? Yeah. You know, I mean, because, you know, kids my age, and I was, I'm trying to think, um, I think I was probably around the 10 or 11. I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't thinking serious Beatle music. I was oh, just no. enjoying it was them, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's, I think, the way most, you know, most of the younger fans were i mean they weren't sure we were as confused as everybody else was you know they were you know um, yeah rain rain took rain took a little bit of getting used to you know a few lessons but it was you know it it, uh, uh and you know and certainly paperback writer was very accessible yeah yeah i know i know as a kid growing up the one song i had a lot of difficulty with was uh well actually two but I am the walrus. I couldn't yes. understand at all yeah. as a little yeah. kid. Yeah, and I, I got scared to death of hearing A Day in the Life yeah. and, and thinking about a car crash, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was kind of an eerie song. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then you had the then you had the Paul is Dead stuff, which surfaced when I was in college. That didn't uh, come out. You know, that didn't come out back in 67. That was that was years after. Right. Um, 69. 69. Yep. Well, I was just curious because this this friend of mine that I mentioned earlier that I had the conversation with, you know, I was talking to her about that, you know, wonderful American Bandstand clip where they show <laughs> the Strawberry Fields video. I, I just mm-hmm. love it. And they were all saying, that's weird. They look weird. And what's with the hair and you know, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. and I remember asking her, you know, what what was it? She said it was sort of a there became kind of a split with her and, and her friends that they seemed to know, OK, they're going in another direction. You're either mm-hmm. with them or you're not. You know, yep. either decided to say, all right, I'm going to see where they're going. And others said, to hell with this. I'm I'm going with the monkeys. You know, mm. I mean, it was like kind of a turning point. Dick Clark looked confused in that clip, too. Sure I mean, it was like, mm. he didn't get it. He I didn't love get it. it at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. You know, most artists who had hit records had a formula. And yep. they stuck to their formula, and the Beatles were constantly evolving. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and rapidly, year after year after year. It's mm-hmm. Part of what kept 
us fascinated with them. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it scared some of us. <laughs> yeah. well, I, don't, I don't remember being confused by any of these things, rain or strawberry fields or any of the stuff on Pepper. I mean, it it kind of was, I think, me and all, also all of my friends, we, we didn't have any splits of opinion about this. It was, mm. what are the Beatles doing mm. now? Okay, let's listen to it. Let's see what right. this is. It, exactly. it, it wasn't, exactly. yeah, it, it wasn't like we worried about whether we liked it or not. It, it just, it was almost as if you would, would take it for granted that you were going to like it. It was the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know, you were kind I of mean, going was, along with the ride. It, it, was, yeah. an event. it was an event because... Uh, I, I mean, you'd have the the disc jockeys, play, you know, playing, making, uh, playing these things once an hour, and then whispering over them. Yes, exclusive, you know, right. I mean, to, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing to keep, uh, as uh, you know, to keep uh, other stations from stealing them. But mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, it was those. They were, they weren't. I you know, I don't remember any stations doing that with anybody else's stuff. No. Hmm. Do you, yeah, I mean, it was only the Beatles. No, were, not even, not even the Stones. Not even the Stones. Not nope. the, nope, not at all. Hmm. So mm-hmm. interesting. But hmm. yet, you know, you were talking about Candy Laird. She made it a point to say that there were a lot of fans who, when Revolver came out, they didn't get it. It was yeah. too, mm-hmm. yeah. too big a change, yeah, and right. they would have rather have turned. That's that was the perfect timing for the Monkees. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Because the mm-hmm. monkeys are playing more of what the Beatles were doing in '65. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if you didn't want to change with the Beatles, if you wanted something similar, go right. with the monkeys. Yeah. Yep. Which, right. of course, the monkeys the, the monkeys pattern themselves enough after the Beatles to make that decision fairly easy. Although I don't, I, I you know, although a lot of people went for the monkeys, not all Beatles fans did. I mean, there were mm-hmm. still Beatles fans that stuck with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, it was. I think it was mostly the the younger, yeah, the younger fans who mm-hmm. you know who really weren't really kind of musically ready for Tomorrow Never Knows or Love You Too, right? You know who who felt who you know their 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 kind of their comfort zone was was more in the area of of the Monkees or Herman's Hermits, mm-hmm. etc. Right. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time here. So this has been a fascinating conversation, mm-hmm. talking about uh, game changers and turning points for the Beatles. And why don't we just go around and let everyone know how our listeners can get in touch with us. Steve, we'll start with you. Uh, you can email me at BeatlesExaminer at gmail.com. I have a personal Facebook page, uh, and I also have... Uh, a Beatles news group called Beatles News and Commentary, where we talk about uh, where I post, you know, some of the stuff that I write, and also we talk about other uh, talk about other things too. So uh, join in. Uh, everybody's welcome to join, and uh, see you there. Okay, Al. Uh, Facebook, Al Sussman. Uh, Twitter uh, at ASUSS49 and uh, uh, through Beetle Fan Magazine, www.beetlefan.com. All right. How about you, Alan? Uh, 
Okay, um, the easiest way to get me directly is on Facebook, either under Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remix. Um, and Steve usually mentions the uh, email address for the group, which is Things We Said Today Radio Show at gmail.com. Um, I answer some of those. Uh, we all do. And you can follow us on Twitter with the at symbol Things We Said Fab. And we have a Facebook page, Things We Said Today, Beatles Radio Fans. I think Steve may have mentioned that one. No, I did. actually I didn't, but nope. I, was okay. to, I was going to. But thank you. Anytime. <laughs> Kit, how about you? Well, you can reach me on uh, Twitter uh, at Kit O'Toole, one word. Uh, I am also on Facebook. You can find me there under Kit O'Toole. And uh, I have a website. Uh, you can go to kitotool.com, the find out what i'm up to yeah and also we should mention since i don't know if you'll be on before then but you will be a guest at the fest for beetle fans i most coming up yep the first uh weekend in march and Mm -hmm. uh and ken and i are going to be doing a panel together on the saturday Mm -hmm. yep so come you know shoot by and say hello to us we'd love to talk to all of you also i would like to mention that as far as getting in contact (laughs) with me ken michaels my email address is every little thing at att.net. You can also friend me on Facebook under the name Ken Michaels. And I just want to mention a couple of things on my website because the last few weeks we've been talking about the Weaklings. And I just saw them in concert, by the way, at Daryl's house. They put on a terrific show there. And they rocked. I mean, this is such a tight band playing mm-hmm. uh, songs, mm-hmm. songs from their first two albums, the originals, and a lot of Beatles. And sometimes really cutting loose. <laughs> On the Beatles stuff. I mean, I Want You, She's So Heavy was a real highlight for me because they were jamming on that song. Uh, hey, Bulldog was fantastic. Helter Skelter, whole bunch of great stuff. Um, and by the way, I just noticed on Facebook um, that Glenn Burtnick from The Weakling said that uh, since they were recording that show for a live album, by the way, um, yes. they had cameras there and there was a live feed on Facebook and they had 21,000 people tuning in. Wow. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. to see the weaklings at Daryl's place. But it was yeah. a tremendous show. And I'm actually giving away a pair of tickets for another weakling show. And this is at the cutting room. And it will be on a date that we're all familiar with February 9th. Mm-hmm. Something might have happened on that date. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, if you want to win a pair of tickets to see the weaklings at the cutting room on February 9th, go to the ticket giveaways page on my website. Also, I have a new book to give away on my Beatles trivia and games page. And I think I heard about it first from Steve. It's called Lennon on Lennon, uh, Conversations with John Lennon, and it's by Jeff Berger. And it's a book of transcriptions of interviews that John gave, many of which have never been published before. Oh, wow. So you could win that on my Beatles trivia and games page, as well as Kit's fine book, Songs You Were Singing. So mm-hmm. just go to uh, my website, at uh, KenMichaelsRadio.com for that. And if I could just interrupt for a second, you were mentioning the Weaklings. I'm yeah. really not supposed to say this, but at the at the fest, um, they're actually on Sunday afternoon. We're actually going to have a press conference with the Weaklings. Oh, nice! In the in the in the, uh, in the discussion room. Is this uh, is this for a big announcement of some kind? Uh, no, no, just a just a general you know press conference because it was something that actually we did uh, some years ago with the Ruddles. 
Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, um, except for Dirk. Dirk wasn't there. But uh, <laughs> but the uh, the other Ruddles were all, st- were all there. But all, all four weaklings will be there. Cool. And, you know, and so we're going to have a uh, an actual an actual press conference. Ooh, I that, have, that's I have, a great idea. Yeah, yeah, that is a great idea. I have one yeah. piece of news that's kind of half related to um, the Beatles, only because it involves uh, it has a connection to a former Ringo All Star. Uh, I'm reading here on Facebook that Pete Overend Watts of Mott the Hoople, who of course would have played with Ian Hunter, um, has passed. Oh. Which is, which is yeah. the original basis for uh, Mata Hoople. Mm. So okay, sad to hear right there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right. So that puts this show to a close. This has been a blast, and thank you, Kit, for joining us. And uh, we welcome you back anytime. Absolutely. Anytime. And for things we said today, this has been Ken Michaels for Al Sussman. And Steve Marinucci and Alan Cozen and Kid O'Toole. We just want to say thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.